Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right, well, I guess it's time for us to get started. If that clock's right, we're a minute or two late. I didn't hear a get started bell, so we'll just go ahead and get started. So our, our series this quarter is, is Fortifying Our Faith. Um, we've been talking about a number of different topics, and um, somehow the lot fell to me for the topic of, of uh, faith and science. And if you recall, last week we started going through a chapter that, that Mark had provided to me from the book Graceful Reason by a gentleman. How do you pronounce Dick's last name? San, what they said, Stanyo. It's got a Z in it that just looks like it should be more prominent than it is. It's S-Z-T-A-N-Y-O. And I looked earlier today, the book's actually available on Amazon. And... Um, I would recommend it because a lot of what we're going to do today, quite frankly, is walking through his chapter on evolutionary presuppositionalism. I said it once, don't expect it to be right again. Um, And so um, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. I think what we're going to do, though, tonight's topic, I will admit, compared to last week, gets a little more ethereal. It's a little more abstract in some of what we're going to talk about. Um... And it gets more so as you go on through the chapter. And it's really good stuff. If you're reading it, it's just a little harder to present in a class, if that makes any sense. Because when you read it, you can go, Tom, you didn't get that last paragraph, and you can read it again. Um, It's a little harder to do that in a class setting. Um, So one of the topics that's going to kind of get introduced tonight that we're going to talk about is a concept from the social sciences that you'll hear discussed every now and then these days. And the way I've heard it described is the God-shaped hole in the human heart. Um, and I think next week we're going to focus more on that, and I have some other material I want to pull from instead. But we're kind of going to introduce that this week with what we're going through because it's something that shows up even in a lot of um, kind of contemporary and kind of popular sources. It's a topic that you'll see right now. There was a, a whole, I think it was actually a series, not even a single podcast that Jordan Peterson, if you've ever heard of him, actually did talking about this. It's something that he's clearly kind of interested in um, and a number of the topics that he explores. And so I thought it would be interesting for us to look at that because that makes it an interesting topic that potentially comes up around a water cooler. And the more informed we are on it, then the more intelligently we can speak to it and, and share our view of that. Um, with others and where some of the flaws are on this, the sides that oppose it. So at least that's my plan right now, subject to change probably in about 45 minutes, depending on how this goes. So if you recall, presuppositionalism is basically this idea that evolution is based on an awful lot of assumptions, presuppositionalism, to presuppose. It's those foundational assus- uh, assumptions that people make that they really just kind of gloss over. Um, They'll talk about them an awful lot about how, well, they can't really be proven. We don't know, and these will probably never be known. So we're just going to assume they're true, and we're going to go from there. And then they'll come up with lots of other great theories, and it becomes 
sacrosanct or, or sacrilegious to ever go back and actually question those root assumptions upon which everything else is based. And that's kind of a pretty big Achilles heel to admit right off the bat um, for evolutionists. We're going to talk about seven things here in a second. I'll remind you of those. We talked about them last time. Seven assumptions they have to make. And one of the points in the book and in this chapter is it's also a really bad place um, to base your theology as well. You need to be very careful about the root assumptions and suppositional apologetics is usually a pretty weak place to start. There's a lot better places to start um, because a lot of times it can kind of prove the negative, but it's very hard to use it to prove the positive. So going back to um, evolutionary presuppositionalism, we talked about a guy named Kirkut. He wrote a book called Implications of Evolution, and he mentions that there are seven basic assumptions that are often not mentioned during discussions of evolution. Many evolutionists, by the way, which he is and a supporter of, um, ignore the first six assumptions and only consider the seventh. And they are as follows. One, the first assumption is that non-living things gave rise to living material, i.e. spontaneous, gen- spontaneous generation occurred. The second one is that spontaneous generation occurred only once. It's just simply assumed. Third, viruses and bacteria... Uh, that viruses, bacteria, plants, and animals are all interrelated. Fourth, interesting they didn't list um, viruses, bacteria, plants, and animals. What's not included in that? Sorry, this just jumped out at me, so I'm really dangerously winging it here, but what's not in that list? Viruses, bacteria, plants, and animals are all interrelated. Fungus. Fungus, spores, and molds are not in that list. Um, the fourth assumption is that protozoa gave rise to metazoa. Basically, single-cell organisms gave rise to multi-cell organisms. Fifth, the assumption that various invertebrate, uh, the various invertebrate phylia are interrelated. The sixth assumption is that invertebrates gave rise to vertebrates. And the seventh is, this is the one that they will tend to refer to a little more, is the assumption that within the vertebrates, the fish gave rise to the amphibians. The amphibians gave rise to the reptiles, the reptiles to the birds and mammals. Sometimes this is expressed in other words, Simply that amphibia and reptiles have a common ancestral stock. (coughs) Interestingly, he then concedes and confesses that for the initial purposes of this discussion on evolution, I shall consider that the supporters of the theory of evolution, again, that this gentleman absolutely was an avid proponent of, hold that all seven of these assumptions are valid and that these assumptions form the, quote, general theory of evolution. The first point I should like to make is that these seven assumptions are by their very nature are not capable of experimental verification. They assume that all, that a certain series of events has occurred in the past that gave rise to these things. So basically what is he saying? He's saying we're assuming that all of these assumptions are valid and occurred and they're untestable, unprovable. Therefore you have to accept them on faith. Science, to a large extent, we're going to get into this some more tonight, has, has turned into, in many ways, um, a religion for the non-religious. Evolutionist John Maddox wrote in a scientific journal, uh, one you might have heard of, it's called Nature, usually considered one of the most prestigious scientific journals. 
It's disappointing that the origin of the genetic code is still as obscure as the origin of life itself. Hold on. It's disappointing that the origin of the genetic code is still as obscure as the origin of life itself. But I thought we knew the origin of life. It was just laid out in those seven assumptions as to where everything came from. There's, a, there's an interesting contradiction you're going to see in a bunch of this we're going to look at the beginning, where on the one hand, they're willing to freely admit we know nothing, and on the other hand, go, but it happened just like this. Or we know kind of generally how it happened and it had to be like this, but we don't really know how it happened. They're, they're saying both things at the same time. Exactly. I have a great passage. You've read ahead. This gentleman must have bought the book. There's a great passage we're going to get to here in a minute that says exactly that, and it reads, it's basically an admission. We'll get to it. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but we'll get to it. Where It basically reads where if I said that and replaced science with the Bible, I would be laughed at as an ignorant fool. Yet, it's basically a free admission that this is how science works. In a lecture series titled Origins of Life, Robert Hazen made this admission. The origin of life is a subject of immense complexity, and I have to tell you right up front, we don't know how it began. How can I tell you about the origin of life when we are so woefully ignorant of that history? Furthermore, he states with refreshing candor, so what happens when you read doesn't sound right, with refreshing candor, this course focuses exclusively on the scientific approach to the questions of life's origin. In this lecture series, I make no assumption that life emerged from the basic raw materials through a sequence I excuse me, I make an assumption that life emerged from the basic raw materials through a sequence of events that was completely consistent with the natural laws of chemistry and physics. It's a pretty bold statement because you may not be aware of this, but the laws of physics have changed drastically in the last hundred years. But he knows that what happened was completely consistent with the laws of chemistry and physics. Even with this scientific approach, there is a possibility that we'll never know. In fact, that we can't ever know. It is possible that life emerged by an almost infinitely improbable sequence of difficult chemical reactions. If life is the result of an infinitely improbable succession of chemical steps, then any scientific attempt to understand life's origin is doomed to failure. Such a succession could not be duplicated in a program of lab experiments. If the origin of life was an infinitely improbable accident, then there's absolutely nothing you or I or anyone else could do to figure out how it happened. I must tell you, that's a depressing thought to someone like me who's devoted a decade to understanding the origin of life. A gentleman named John Horgan titled an article, amazingly enough, don't tell the creationists, but scientists don't have a clue how life began. When I was looking back over this, something that jumped out at me was I saw a clip, I guess it was on YouTube, and it was... Um, who was it? It was Joe Rogan. And he was talking about how, oh yeah, he was explaining something about, yeah, well the way Neil deGrasse Tyson explained it to me was that, and he was talking about the multiverse, about how there's so many possibilities that somewhere there's another multiverse where there's another Joe Rogan who is exactly like me, that's experienced everything I've experienced in my life exactly all the way up to this point. And basically, 
people have made math their God. They have made math infinitely powerful by simply saying, well, everything is so infinite with so many possibilities that I can fit whatever I want into that. It's nonsensical. It doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. There's no evidence for it, but I can't explain it the way I want to, and I've already decided I can't explain it this way over here that makes sense and that the evidence supports. Therefore, I have to come up with more and more ludicrous explanations to try to fit what I've seen. I assume most people in here have heard of Richard Dawkins. A fairly famous guy, atheist. He's written a number of books. He's kind of the go-to guy when you want somebody to explain something about evolutionary theory or why we shouldn't believe in God or, or why atheism is right. And he got interviewed by Ben Stein for a movie called Expelled, No, no Intelligence Allowed. And the exchange went something like this. Dawkins started. Nobody knows how it started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that must have happened for the origin of life. It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Ben Stein. Right. How did it happen? Dawkins. I've told you. We don't know. Stein. So you have no idea how it started. Dawkins. No. Nor has anybody else. Okay? So he's quite adamant to tell you they don't know how it started. But then he speaks to spontaneous generation. This is a quote from one of Dawkins' books. The origin of life was a chemical event or series of events whereby the vital conditions for natural selection first came about. Scientists invoke the magic of large numbers, the beauty of the anthropic principle is that it tells us, against all intuition, that a chemical model need only predict that life will arrive on one planet in a billion billion to give us a good and entirely satisfying explanation for the process of life here. I'm sorry, that's an awful lot of detail about specifically kind of how it happened. Then I invoke the magic of really big numbers from somebody who just admitted they have no idea how it happened. Because his answer was basically, we don't know how it happened, so we're just going to say that, well, all you have to do is be able to imagine a scheme where it might kind of be possible where it could happen, and then assume that everything's big enough that there's a chance, and then there you go. I mean, that, that's, that's the whole basis of it. Interesting, nobody's ever used that to get out of a crime in a court of law, James. Did you kill this person? Well, no, but if you just imagine that out of the billions of people on the planet, it's possible there could be somebody else that looked at me that might have just happened to have been in that same place, then there's a reasonable doubt that it wasn't me. In Alabama and Texas, those people go to the chair. Dawkins goes on, Once in a blue moon, the addressing system itself is changed. Chimpanzees have 24 pairs of chromosomes, and we only have 23. We share a common ancestor with chimpanzees, so at some point, either our ancestors or the chimps, in either our ancestors or the chimps, there must have been a change in chromosome number. Either we lost a chromosome, two merged, or chimps gained one, one split. There must have been at least one individual who had different number of chromosomes from his parents, from his book, The Blind Watchmaker. We have no idea how it happened, but now I'm going to explain to you how it happened. 
Dawkins even goes further. And this one is really amazing to make this admission, in my opinion. Because he thinks somehow this proves his case. A Xerox machine is capable of copying its own blueprints. But it is not capable of springing spontaneously into existence. Biomorphs readily replicate in the environment provided by a suitably written computer program. But they can't write their own program and run it. In f- the theory of the blind watchmaker is extremely powerful given that we are allowed to assume replication and hence cumulative selection. But if replication needs complex machinery, since the only way we know for complex machinery ultimately to come into existence is cumulative selection, we have a problem. Well, I would argue there is another way that's been put forward as to how you could end up with complex machinery other than cumulative selection, which is basically evolution. But he admits we have a problem. Again, because by his theory of the blind watchmaker, we are, a, we are allowed to assume replication. Over and over, what you'll see is you are allowed to assume lots of things as long as they don't involve nature and spirit or nature and something else that we're still trying to grasp. You can assume a lot of really crazy stuff as long as it all came from inanimate matter as we understand it. So let's make sure we understand this. First, no scientist can really tell us how life began, either from non-living matter or in a transition from one form of life to another. Second, there's no way for scientists to deal with singularity events, like origins, period. Because the whole point of science is I can recreate it and I can test it in a laboratory. Third, they admit that their view is based on mere assumption rather than factual data. That's the thing that I find so amazing, James, is you go look at these and they aren't, they aren't speaking to, well, we know by this exact very thing, it's these very broad categories of generalizations that get appealed to. And fourth, even though they admit they, and I quote, don't have a clue as to how life began, we are assured that if we just, again, I quote, invoke the magic of large numbers... What it really, against all intuition, probably occurred on a billion, billion planets. Ours just happens to be the lucky one, I suppose. So I guess we're all just really a blue moon occurrence. Actually, based on their numbers, blue moons are way more common. (laughs) Sir? Okay. Really? Well, there's another one that violates all the stuff we're talking about, and it's the laws of thermodynamics. And entropy always increases. So to find a system that is more ordered than the one that it came from, or even over time within the same system, for complexity to have gone up, work had to be done on that system. Work from where? In the physics book I had, James, probably not the one you guys turned down. It's a college physics book. 
There's a cartoon at the beginning of it that I loved because when they were first talking about these principles, some of y'all may have seen it. It was basically a caveman banging out some letters in stone and it was the word entropy. And the first few letters looked, some of you are smiling like you've seen this, the first few letters were beautifully carved and perfect and as you went on, they were falling apart (laughs) and tending towards chaos where you could barely even tell what the last one said. Uh Uh-oh, good, let's hear it. Okay. Well, and we've seen that over and over. The, the alternative is there, but we've already decided what we're not going to accept. And we're about to get into a gentleman that does an awful lot of that. Um, So it's interesting that we have all these people that admit that it's just kind of this dumb luck, this blue moon occurrence, but what are we supposed to make from the cry of science teachers parodying the party line that says evolution happens all the time? Because even according to Dawkins, it was this, well, everything lined up just right this one time, and out of a billion, billion planets, you go find one place where it could have happened. There's a bunch of different ways you can look at it. There's macro and micro. And so you have kind of the two things. One is, yes, very much that idea of adaptation to change in an environment where you see something slowly change over time. In some ways, you could argue that that's almost like, well, have you ever looked at a picture of a pug from the late 1800s? It looks nothing like the pugs we have today, right? So it's where they basically somehow in nature, there's this natural selection for a given trait or characteristic and instead of having the pugs that almost look like normal dogs back in the late 1800s you have the pugs we have today i have one problem with that from an evolutionary point of view pug's still a dog and if i look at it i still know that it's a dog nobody's ever adaptively bred a dog into a i'll give you an easy one a cat much less a single cell organism into a multi-cell organism into an invertebrate into a vertebrate into an amphibian into a reptile into a bird or a mammal apparently i just need a billion billion planets so we have all these questions and act like this happens all the time yet we find even dawkins admitting the improbability having to invoke the beauty the magic of incredibly huge numbers Yet we find Herman J. Mueller in a debate in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1977 say, the principle of evolution is firmly established, even as the rotundity of the earth is firmly established. I like that one. That's a big word, Glenn. He had a document that was signed by 177 scientists and graduate students to, quote, keep the pressure on. What else could we think from such an apparently conflicting comments if... On the one hand, the leading lights in the evolutionary world admit that they, quote, don't have a clue as to how life began. But on the other, we're being told that evolution is as firmly established as the earth is round. Evidently, this concept is being sold as a bit of a wave of propaganda. Precisely because, as we mentioned last time, what we can't allow is a divine foot in the door.
Okay, so the question comes down to this. Why should I or anyone else simply accept or assume that your conclusions are correct? Those seven tenets that you're starting with, why should I ever even assume those? And this is, a, this is an interesting quote. It came from a person who sits as a, a very um, prestigious position at MIT named Joyce Ratzenberg, and he wrote this. At this point, it is necessary to reveal a little inside information about how scientists work. Something the textbooks don't usually tell you. The fact is that scientists are not really as objective and, and dispassionate in their work as they would like you to think. Most scientists, first, get their ideas about how the world works not through rigorously logical processes, but through hunches and wild guesses. As individuals, they often come to believe something they know to be true long before they assemble the hard evidence that will convince someone else that it is. Motivated by faith in his own ideas and a desire for acceptance by his peers, and do not underestimate that one, because who peer reviews all those journal articles in Nature and Science and Physics and every other magazine that's touted as truth, A scientist will labor for years knowing in his heart that his theory is correct but devising experiment after experiment whose results he hopes will support his position. So, if I may myself invoke the mystery of large numbers, if I have enough scientists simply coming up with hunches and guesses and coming up with enough of their own experiments to try to support their own conclusions for their own sake, I would argue that eventually I could find enough of them that will find fellow people who agree with what they're saying to get to a point where they can go publish something as fact so it ends up in a place like nature as peer-reviewed and irrefutable because it's been reviewed by his peers, which, by the way, is part of what was just listed as one of his prime motivators. One of the reasons why I want to talk about the man-shaped hole in the human heart last week is because I listened to an interesting discussion uh, a number of months ago now. I've got to go re-listen to it this week. Talking about the huge replication problem, especially in the social sciences. We have lots of things that are being shoved in our face as truth and fact. It's shaping the public schools. It's shaping our colleges. And we're told, nope, this is true. We know it's right. Glenn talked about a bunch of it Sunday night problem is, by the definition of science, even natural science that we use today, it doesn't work. Because the whole point of science is if James and I have a theory, or if I have a theory and I do an experiment and I come up with a result that I think supports my theory, for that to be accepted, James needs to be able to take what I did and replicate it. But especially in the social sciences, there's a huge replication problem where people are taking these supposedly social theories that have been done, and when they try to go do their own set of research to even validate what somebody else has done, they get completely different answers. Case in point, we all know that it's really important, especially with elementary kids and into junior high during those formative years, we need to make sure we support their self-esteem. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to crush that self-esteem. Self-esteem is really important. We need to make sure everybody gets a participation ribbon because what we don't want to do is crush that self-esteem 
And how many programs have you seen in schools and other places that are all about making sure we don't hurt anybody's feelings? Turns out the research that was put on, you'll never hear this probably in a board of education meeting, but all the research that was based on that led to that, it's been completely debunked. It was completely not replicatable. And there were serious flaws where, I know this is shocking, but a scientist in their belief and zeal and desire to be accepted by their peers came out with an experiment that was rather flawed and magically supported what they wanted to find. Just saying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of people have just come to the point where we can't accept what everything points to, so I will make up anything else to explain it instead. So again, motivated by his own faith, in his own ideas and a desire for acceptance by, fears, by, by his peers, a scientist will labor for years knowing in his heart that his theory is correct. How can you claim to be objective? when you're laboring for years to prove what you already know in your heart to be true. So let's talk about some things that cannot be the result of organic evolution. We talked last time about Flew's Prison, um, a debate where this was presented was between a gentleman named Warren and a gentleman named Flew. I've been told by Glenn that he was there for that, and if you have any questions, he remembers every last aspect of it. And it's... Oh, no, no. It's my story. I'll tell it how I want. No, interestingly enough, when, when but a wee lad, because he's not old enough to have been an old man, he was actually present at that debate. Flew's prison, one of the things that was made clear was that no one could explain how life came from non-living matter. It's also said that no one could rationally explain how consciousness emerged from non-conscious matter. All right, this is the part of our discussion. You'll be happy to know that we're already three-quarters of our way through our time because when you start talking about consciousness and non-conscious matter and abstract thought and the physical world, I'll admit, this is that section where it's way easier to read the paragraph and then go, okay, hold on, and then read the paragraph. (laughs) And eventually you get through it. First, our intellectual sensibilities involves complex reasoning skills that include insights they cannot possibly be derived from matter. And even more surprisingly, they have absolutely nothing to do with the physical realm of energy and matter as we understand it. These are timeless principles like the idea of non-contradiction. I cannot simultaneously be here and not be here. Things like principle of causality. If I walk up in the woods and I find, I don't know, Glenn, you like doing woodworking. I walk up in the woods and I find a table saw. My first assumption is not, oh, this table saw evolved from the material of the woods. It's, oh, this table saw belongs to somebody. Right? Simple principle of causality, cause and effect. These insights are known with absolute certainty as concepts. Unless you get on some of the weird fringes where I really want to deny God and I really start making up stuff. Talk about a little of that. So let's start by considering abstract concepts like ideas, Oughtness. So a couple of gentlemen wrote a book called The Mindmaker Argument. And they made this following comment. The Mindmaker Argument begins with a fact. We can grasp instantiable characteristics or universals, as they're usually called. 
Suppose for a second that you think of a neuron. In grasping this complex thought, you grasp the constituent concept of a neuron, right? What's a neuron? It's a brain cell. It's a, it's a neuron. It's what makes up our brains and controls our muscles. The characteristic of a neuron is instantiable, right? There can be more than one neuron. Neuron is the abstract idea. There can be more than one instance of a neuron. The important point of an argument is that unlike a particular instance of a neuron, like the ones in my head that hopefully I'm using right now, the instantiable characteristic, it has no spatial location, right? If I'm just thinking of the idea of a neuron, it could be anywhere. It could be in Gary's head. It could be in James' head. It could be in Stephen's head. Anybody, right? It has no physical, no spatial location. It's pointless to ask, where is neuron? You ask, where is a particular neuron? <laughs> where are your neurons? <laughs> the same is true for other instantiable characteristics such as validity or consternation. Sorry. No one asked how many meters apart separate validity from consternation. That, that doesn't make any sense. Those don't exist in physical space. Or how wide is equanimity? Got that one, Gary? How wide is equanimity? How many, how many pounds is love? Right? There are concepts that exist that are not physical concepts. So what's the point? These abstract concepts have nothing to do with empirical observations. The material universe or any other, you know, presupposed thing, you know, abstract concepts have a life of their own. And in that aspect, you know, they're not understandable in the same way. Not only are they not derivable from mere matter, but the fact is that we can only really understand them as essences. I can't, I can't hold consternation in my hand. There's no possibility of such essential concepts being derived from mere matter and everything we've ever seen. And that alone is an amazing truth that each of us can readily understand. How do you go from that pile of supposedly that self-replicating molecule or even a single cell organism and get all the way to a concept like, just because I like the word and I want to drive Troy crazy, consternation. Sorry, that's going to take more than a billion, billion planets and simply invoking the magic of big numbers. So let's talk about brain activity, right? Such as the firing of neurons. They cannot possibly account for the phenomenon of memory. Have you thought about that? Scientists are still really having a hard time figuring out memory. Because every time they get closer and they kind of see stuff that happens, it's still like, eh, there's more going on here than just... It, it's not a hard disk, right? We like using these computer analogies to try to describe the human brain and even earlier in the quote I read talked about you know the magic software of the universe or whatever but we talk about something like memory it's not like scientists have figured out oh well what happens is you have this clump of of memory cells and then they store it like this and it's just like you know writing ones and zeros to a hard disk and a bunch of memory locations and you just store it and it just sits there and it does its thing and when you want to retrieve it you just go get it again that's not how memory works Especially when you consider the fact that the more we learn about memory, we learn things like, oh, memories really can be manipulated. Gary and I could remember this class completely different. 
I guarantee you, James and I remember it different. Just I think this class is going awesome. I'm hoping he thinks it's okay. We know that there's stuff that goes on in memory that transcends the merely physical. When we remember events in the past and recreate them, somehow in our conscious gaze, we're aware of the fact that something more than physical is occurring and taking place. Moreover, when we formulate plans and goals for future events, we are aware that we can somehow control certain aspects of that future event by free choice. How can consciousness of the past or the future be accounted for by supposedly mere physical processes that are occurring in the presence, in the present? If I'm literally nothing but a bunch of really complicated chemical reactions that are going on right now, how do I account for stuff in the past? All right, well, maybe you could try to tell me there's some memory effect or something that lingers in there through some incredibly complicated process. But how do you account for things in the future? And we're not talking about necessarily abstract things, but general concepts, I'd rather go this way or that way. It reminded me when I was reading this, just to continue boring you, of a concept when I was in school, I'm an electrical engineer, sorry, um, of causal systems, causal and non-causal systems, which are two different types of systems, and you can only implement one of them, because one of them, I have to know what's happening in the future. To be able to come up with my answer right now, I might need a bunch of data points that are everything I know now and what's in the past, but if I also need to know stuff in the future, I can't build that system. And there's entire classes you can take on how to turn non-causal, because mathematically I can do that, but in the real world I can't. And so there's all kinds of tools and tricks to turn non-causal systems into causal systems. I'll do stuff in a computer like, well, I'll just buffer it, and I'll make that decision once I know what those next few samples are. And then I'll do the math. Which is not really like knowing the future, it's just waiting to make a decision. The other interesting thing is if we examine an object, if I'm staring at this microphone, I'm learning about it, I'm getting an idea how tall it is, I see it's there, I might go, oh, it's yellow, I didn't realize that, okay, yellow button on the back, it's smooth back here, a little rougher up here. I have now perceived this object and understood about it. I've taken in an awful lot of information about it, it's shiny, I can see a really distorted version of myself in it, I know what that picture looks like. I haven't gotten any heavier. It hasn't actually affected me physically. But I now know more about it, can make decisions based on it. I can decide when I walk over here in the future, even if I'm not looking at it, to make sure I don't run into it. Second, we have a moral sensitivity that enables us to choose to suppress or contradict our instincts to either survive or reproduce, which evolution is basically based on. Evolution basically assumes that every organism's goal is to do the two things. Stay alive and make more of myself. Yet, humans all the time suppress this. Think of people who act to save others. Here's a great example. Uh, In 1982, there was an Air Florida Flight 90. Ended up in the Potomac River. And an author wrote about the person most responsible for the emotional impact of the disaster is one known at first simply as the man in the water. He was balding probably in his 50s and had an extravagant mustache. He was seen clinging with five other survivors to a tail section of an airplane. 
This man was described by Usher and Windsor as appearing alert and in control. Every time they lowered a lifeline or float, float ring to him, he passed it on to another of the passengers. In a mass casualty, you'll find people like him, said Windsor, but I've never seen one with that commitment. When the helicopter came back for him, the man was gone. He had gone under. His selflessness was one reason why the story held national attention. His anonymity was another. But what accounts for his sort of heroism? Right? Where, where, does this, where does this sense of ethics come from that says, hey, I'm okay right now, let's make sure these other people are okay, and then I'll worry about me? There's no reason for that to exist in nature. If my two goals are to survive and reproduce, he acted counter to both of those. His, his actions did nothing to further either of those. You know, stories like this, we, we hear about them all the time, and these things occur due to a sense of, of oughtness possessed by human beings. If you're looking... All right, so there's no way to explain for these obligatory notions from the physical sciences themselves. In fact, what we learn from, from other animals is how unique that is. Now, you'll see an awful lot of stretching and bending and trying to explain things that people observe in other animal groups as, oh, look, that's the exact same thing. It's never exactly the same thing, right? It's always an attempt to try to come up with a way to explain it. But if you look at it closely, it's never quite the same thing. It's, it's never a deliberate, intentional action of whatever that other animal was that got eaten instead. I don't know about you, I've yet to see the film where the zebra walks out and says, here, eat me so everyone else can live. It's interesting that, um, well, this is a really tired example. I'm going to use it anyway because it was already used in the book, and it, it clearly shows it, but we're probably all sick of hearing this example get used. But, you know, I think we can all agree that it was and still is absolutely wrong for people like the Nazis to attempt to exterminate an entire race of people on earth. Robert Jackson argued in the Nuremberg trials that the Nazis weren't being judged guilty because of a violation of British law or American law, or even German law. They were being judged by a law that, and I quote, transcended the, prov- the provincial and the transient. That means that they were being judged by a law that went beyond any cultural norms or any time frame. What they did was wrong for all persons in all places at all times. And I know the argument you're making, you're like, oh, but Tom, Julius Caesar did the same thing to the Celts, right, in in Northern Europe. Yes, and you could have held the same trial at that time for the crimes that he committed and made the same logical pleas. And he would have been just as guilty. So, Flew and Matson debated Warren and was asked that question, and both men agreed, Flew and Matson were the, the two atheists that, that Warren was debating, they both agreed that what the Nazis did was absolutely and objectively wrong. 
but on grounds marked out by atheistic philosophy, neither man could justify that answer because moral absolutes require an absolute moral being in whom those moral norms are rooted. So, while they agreed that it was wrong, the same thing happened in the Barker-Butt debate. I don't know if you remember this. Kind of the, Kyle put Dan Barker in kind of the same position where, in fact, I think he even used the example of the Nazis when he did it. He said, oh, it's horrible. I think he might have used the idea of uh, a bunch of people are going to die or something when he commits some heinous act to save someone else from dying. And it was, oh, it's horrible. I'd go, I'd go kill myself instead. But he never could articulate why. He never could justify that position other than admitting that such a place exists. So we're about from here to jump into a bunch of other stuff that talks about how, well, we're not tonight because the bell just rang, but we're going to talk about next week how this then jumps into this idea where humans have this clear consciousness of something other than themselves. They have this idea um, beyond just the physical that we can see around us. It's the reason you could boil it down as simply as why humans ask the question of what happens when I die? Never seen any other animal ask that question. Nor do they seem to be particularly bothered by it. But we're going to go from that and we're going to look at some of these other things that are there. There's some, we'll probably start with a little more of this. There's some great stuff from C.S. Lewis with some questions that he posed. And then we'll go on from there. And I'd like to thank you all for proving me wrong. Far fewer of you fell asleep than I expected. So thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.